This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we once again pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, the polyoptics of war and war reporting. Sebastian Younger, author, journalist, documentarian, joins us in studio. Josh King and I will talk to him about his award-winning film Restrepo and his 2012 book War. But first, we'll take you on the trail with New York Times political blogger Ashley Parker. She's covering the Romney campaign and takes us backstage at an event in North Dakota. I am joined, as always, by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role that I played in the George W. Bush White House. Josh, another great polyoptics week. It's great to have you here. It's great to be with you, Adam. Uh, Very interesting week on the polyoptics front. Um, I think we should start probably by acknowledging the passing of a very important voice on the right side of the political spectrum, a person that, you know, obviously didn't resonate too closely with me, but but was profoundly influential in what we're seeing today in politics of the right. That's right. Uh, with, with no warning at all, we woke up this week to learn that Andrew Breitbart had, uh, had died, quote-unquote, of natural causes at the young age of 43. He was part of the drudge cabal, if, if I can even say that. He was part of uh, the team that really stood the drudge report up uh, at its beginning, was with uh, that team of folks for almost a decade, and has gone on to enormous heights uh, in his own media empire. I mean, he was out there defining polyoptics, the, the, the visualization of our politics and creating narratives uh, in a way that no one else could. We and, from, and from a polyoptics perspective, Adam, who could forget the moment, I think, last June when we were following the Anthony Weiner story for about two weeks on end. Weiner comes up at the New York Sheraton, uh, has this odd news conference, resigns from Congress, but the real story about that day in New York City was not Anthony Weiner, it was the guy who followed him to the podium. Let's hear a little bit. I, I have I, I want to hear the truth. I want to hear the truth from Congressman Weiner. Quite frankly, I'd like an apology for him being complicit in a blame the messenger strategy. That was clear what happened. 72 hours in Palm Springs with your family is excruciating when you are being challenged. Andrew, why aren't you on vacation? Why won't you get off the phone? Because I'm being accused of being the hacker against a congressman. He said nothing. He allowed for that to go. His minions perpetuated that false malicious meme and then he went on CNN to attack me. I feel I feel he was complicit. Yeah, this was a, an impromptu press conference before the press conference that sort of has come to typify uh, Andrew's uh, citizen journalism. He was definitely an advocate. I had a friend of mine uh, tell me this morning that he felt in the long run that the passing of Andrew Breitbart at such a young age was a Lee Atwater level loss for the Republican right. Um, I don't know how that will bear out Josh but he was an influential player in somebody who had his uh, target clearly on the back of the president in terms of muckraking in this upcoming election Right. I mean, ideologically, I shared nothing with him, but I, I certainly uh, am a student of what Matt Drudge has been able to do and the pe- and the people that helped create the Drudge Report, and Andrew was one of them. The uh, President of the United States uh, at the end of this week, though, was up in New Hampshire delivering a speech on 
energy policy, and it, and it stood in stark contrast, I think, to one that uh, Mitt Romney was giving on the similar topic up in Fargo, North Dakota, uh, accusing the president of not understanding energy, uh, not understanding the folks who are benefiting from industries like fracking uh, and taking, taking uh, you know, advantage of oil-rich deposits that exist within the continental United States. The politics of energy playing out, and our first guest today is somebody who's been following President uh, Obama's chief Republican uh, nemesis, Romney. Uh, he's not quite the nominee yet, Joshua, but Super Tuesday could point him in the right direction. Adam, we have on the line uh, with us Ashley Parker, Washington-based reporter for the New York Times. She's also written for the Times Magazine, uh, was a researcher for Maureen Dowd, and she's written for the New York Sun, Glamour, HuffPo, Washingtonian, Chicago Magazine, and Life. And and. Also, her uh, photographs have appeared in Vanity Fair. Ashley, welcome to Polyoptics. Where do we find you on the Romney campaign today? Uh, I am actually calling you from a high school gym in uh, Idaho Falls where Governor Romney just finished up a huge rally for him. A huge rally for Romney. How does that compare to a huge rally for uh, Obama this time in the campaign four years ago when they used Twitter to get to fill 15,000 people in a basketball arena? Well, I can, you know, I've basically been following Governor Romney since this summer, so I can only speak for him. And when I meant huge, I meant not only was there sort of a huge crowd, you know, in this in this room in particular, there I think were 1,200 people, and then there was an overflow room in a gymnasium of, of about another thousand. So, but so not only was the crowd big, but it was sort of you know one of his most enthusiastic crowds. Um, they were cheering, they were you know booing President Obama at the right times that Romney wanted them to boo. They were cheering. Uh, him and his policies. Um, it was sort of the electric types of crowds you saw with President Obama four years ago, which are not always the crowds that Governor Romney attracts. Ashley, uh, your byline at the caucus blog is one that you must follow if you want to get a bird's eye view of what's really going on on the ground. Uh, North Dakota, really? What, what, what's got them out there today? Um. Well, you know, so he just won, uh, you know, two pretty big wins in Arizona and Michigan. And now going into Super Tuesday, there's 10 states at play. And, you know, Romney wants to hit as many of them as possible. So we've actually had a kind of interesting westward swing. Um, we were in, where were we? This morning we were in Fargo, North Dakota. We've already read um, your file out of Fargo. <laughs> we, we just flew into uh, Idaho Falls and we are picking up and leaving soon for Seattle, Washington. And then... By tomorrow evening, we will be back in Ohio. Um, so I think this is just him trying to hit as many places as possible. Now, Adam, this is the best part of the campaign for you and me. I mean, when we are actually leaving the the sort of single-state primaries uh, that, you know, you, you go from Detroit to Romulus to Grand Rapids, you, <laughs> you, you're all over Iowa or you're all over New Hampshire or South Carolina or Florida, suddenly you're going to these Bergs, these Dells, uh, the Fargo, North Dakotas, the Idaho Falls, uh, places that have not seen a presidential candidate in four years, and maybe that lends to this sort of excitement level give me anyone on stage. I just want to have a little politics on the plate. Yeah, Ashley continually brings us right into the heart of it. And uh, one of the things that I love most recently about your writing is that you've given us a bit of a glimpse as to the real people who are there and what they're thinking and how they feel. And I, I wonder if you'd elaborate for folks listening on Polyoptics, uh, what kind of a human being just interestingly uh, authentic is Mitt Romney these days on the trail? Is is he perfunctory or is he really getting into this and is he able to connect with people? 
You know, that's that's one of the biggest challenges uh, in his campaign, and I think the truth probably lies somewhere between the public caricature of someone who can't relate at all, um, you know, versus the sort of slightly more spinny version that aides give you of a private Romney who is, you know, so funny, so warm, self-deprecating. I think he actually falls somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, he's definitely gotten a lot better at relating to voters. And actually, as I just saw today, he's someone, like a lot of politicians, who feeds off of the crowd. So when it's a big, excited, energetic crowd, he, he does a lot better. Um, but, you know, he can also... He can also have problems relating. A, a good example that struck me was from a town hall actually yesterday in Ohio when a man stood up and said uh, he had a question about health care. But in, in asking his question, he sort of prefaced it with a personal story, which is that his daughter has Down syndrome and she has heart defects, and they know she's going to need heart surgery for that. And he wanted to know what Governor Romney was going to do to sort of help his family when the time came with health care for his daughter to have this surgery. And, and Governor Romney just sort of, you know, without acknowledging the man or his personal story, just launched into his health care talking points. And so that's an instance where Bill Clinton might have done a better job of, you know. A better job. Relating. That would be catnip for President Clinton. <laughs> Um, and not to not to belittle that situation at all, but but frankly, that's where President Clinton uh, shined because he did uh, understand exactly where people's perspective was coming from when they asked a question like that. He didn't use it as an automatic cue to go into a policy standpoint, and and that will be the challenge uh, for Mitt Romney if he's the nominee and heads toward the summer. Uh, and frankly, he's lucky he's against Barack Obama, who who has some of those challenges himself. Ashley's been keeping people's feet to the fire, though, on the policy issues. Uh, you, you shared with all of your readers a little bit about a, what is becoming an increasingly rare opportunity for folks on the road to speak to the candidate. And in a short press conference the other day with you and others, uh, some some real questions and answers got, got given back and forth. And uh, I wonder if you just brief us a little bit about his understanding of comments like, my wife drives a couple Cadillacs, or uh, what the the net result of his performance and just trying to meet with people in Daytona. What's this about? And, and is there a disconnect between the aides and the candidate? Uh, you know, we, we asked him that. Uh, someone asked him kind of point blank, do you understand how these how these comments are, are hurting your candidacy? And Romney said, he sort of answered with one word. He said, yes. Um, and in another question, he actually kind of stepped forward to take the blame for some of the issues uh, that have been going on in his campaign. Um, he, you know, he just said sometimes the candidate makes mistakes and, you know, it wasn't his aide's fault at all. Uh, so, so yeah, it was, it was sort of a candid Romney on display there. Of course, he didn't elaborate. He said, he said, yes, he understands how it's hurting him, and then he tried to quickly move on to the next question. This is a Mitt Romney, Ashley, that uh, won in his uh, native state of Michigan, really despite himself. Um, you you followed sort of the the week run up toward the uh, toward the voting in, in Michigan, and you actually did a video piece for the New York Times, breaking down the anatomy of a Romney rally. I want to listen to a little audio of that and have you expand a little bit on it. All right, I'm the warm up guy, so you guys will be ready to go by the time Mitt gets up here. All right, I'm just kidding. Let's pray. In the hours before Mitt Romney was set to speak at a rally in Flint, Michigan on Saturday, his staff members were a blur of activity. The seats were in place and the lights were set up hours in advance. They were even putting together a live debt clock. A live debt clock. We're talking about a campaign with a whole lot of organization, right, Ashley? And a whole lot of cash to put up some signage like that, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, he is head and shoulders above the other candidates in terms of his organization and his advanced team. Well, you, you, you've been following him for, for quite a long time, and your perspective on it is really meaningful. Uh, Josh and I have done this for a living. Does it make an impact on the people who are at these rallies? Is it a, a, a dress for a, a larger national audience? What, what do you glean from the consistently high standards of Romney events as compared to his competitors? I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, I think optics are important. You know, for instance, the Ford Field speech fiasco where he, and you know, again, uh, to be clear, the Romney campaign did not choose that venue, but at the end of the day, they're the candidate and they had final say, but it was when Romney addressed, um, you know, this huge home of the Detroit Lions that can hold 65,000 and he just had 1,200 people there and the images of what looked like a really sparse crowd stepped on his policy message. So, you know, this absolutely matters when he has a vet clock or when they light the stage perfectly or they have the exact right size American flag behind the candidate. I mean, these are the images that are getting sent out on, on network television, on the nightly news, what, what people who aren't at the event see. Um, and I think that absolutely matters. And another argument uh, as to why, and certainly organization is not all of it, right? I mean, people vote about a gut feeling for the candidate. They actually care about his policies and what he says he's going to do and his stance on whatever it is they most care about but you know oftentimes a campaign is sort of a a dry run for how someone would manage their presidency you know how organized they would be how on top of things they would be um and so in that sense you know this this matters that governor romney is pretty well organized well ashley parker you are uh on the you are in the bubble for us uh uh, along with the boys and the girls on the bus. Uh, you can follow Ashley at, at Ashley R. Parker at, at Twitter. Uh, very interestingly, the Instagrams you're posting on the trail are fantastic. Yes, they are. I, I love Thank the, you. Thank I you love, so much. Uh, I love the fact that, that the Times is also invested in having uh, Yana Paskova along with you to take sort of the unique Times angle pictures of some of these Romney events so we're not just getting pure pure wire photography. You're sort of seeing the nuance of the campaign in the same way that you're writing about it. Yana's shooting it. And so it's it's really a, a potpourri of great coverage. And I hope you'll stay in touch with us over the next weeks and months and tell us what's going on with Mitt as he cruises across the country. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you again for having me on today. Adam, when we were getting ready to plan this week of polyoptics, uh, it, it was evident to both you and I that there was big news coming from the White House News Photographers Association. Uh, Charles Darapak, Charlie Darapak, won News Photographer of the Year, and you and I both went through his portfolio. And there was just some amazing shots of Obama at the White House and what was going on in the campaign trail. I think his photo of the year was one of Ron Paul set against a uh, American flag, sort of George S. Patton style, but with one fist raised high up that was the only other piece of flesh in the screen except for Ron Paul and the American flag. And uh, But then at the other side of the spectrum, it was certainly evident to us that this has been a just heartbreaking year for the work of journalists who are covering combat of a far more perilous kind, don't you think? The photography that we've been focused on uh, has taken us on a journey, but the, the danger that you speak of, the loss of life that we've seen on the part of journalists who are in the field, taking us into places that so often we just assume not know about, uh, bring the narrative to us in a way that we absolutely have to have. And I think that as we 
sort of learned that we would have the opportunity, this rare opportunity to have Sebastian Younger with us today on polyoptics, uh, it, it just brought to the top of my mind what polyoptics is all about, uh, the ability to show people to see with our own eyes that which professional photographers can capture in the field, and there's no substitute for it, Josh. That's right. I mean, we two weeks ago, I think we got the news that Anthony Shadid, the New York Times mm-hmm. reporter, had uh, had uh, died en route from Syria to Turkey. We uh, we then saw news about Marie Colvin and uh, Remy Ocelik, uh, and that compounded, I think, the data that we had from the Committee to Protect Journalists that in 2011, Adam, 46 journalists were killed covering action in the field. And uh, one of those, uh, going back in 2010, I think, in Misrata, uh, Libya, was Tim Hetherington. Uh, And Tim, uh, as you know, Adam, uh, was uh, co-director and companion of Sebastian Younger as they were... uh, embedded with uh, Second Company in uh, Outpost Restrepo in the Korangal Valley. And uh, it just brought it all home. And, and as we sort of thought about people that we might talk to to give some perspective on the perils that face our 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 men and women in uniform who are, are fighting the war in Afghanistan and the people who cover it, there's no one better than Sebastian Younger. So welcome to Polyoptics. Oh, thank you very much. Sebastian, it's it's truly a pleasure to have you on on this, this broadcast because uh, unlike so much of the network news coverage that we see and is, is gathered at, at great sacrifice on the part of those who would be in the field, the work that you have done, specifically uh, the work that you did uh, with Tim Hetherington, um, have brought all of us to a place where it's it's almost too real to even imagine it and yet you take us every step of the way and bring us face to face with what war in Afghanistan is really all about well thank you I feel very proud of that project and um, I lost a very very good friend uh, in Tim Hetherington it was actually last April uh, 2011 um, we had we had been at the Oscars together I never expected that we would go and there we were and um, but we were you know we're working journalists and the Arab Spring was sort of exploding all around us when we were out in LA and the first thing we wanted to do was go overseas and cover some of these extraordinary events and I was prevented for personal reasons but Tim went on his own and he was killed in uh, Misrata Libya on, on April 20 by a mortar shell um, but we, you know, what we wanted to do in Afghanistan uh, was follow one, pl- one platoon, about 30, 35 men, for an entire deployment or as much as we could get away with. Uh, we were at a very remote outpost called Restrepo. There was no running water, no internet, no phone, no electricity for a while. They slept on the ground and they were in, you know, three, four, five firefights a day. I mean, it was full on combat. And all we wanted to do, we know that war is a political thing. It should be, it should be argued about. Soldiers actually don't really engage in that argument as far as we could tell. What we wanted to do with our cameras was simply show their experience in such a way where the viewer could briefly imagine that he or she was there, almost like we wanted to give people a 90-minute deployment without breaking away to any kind of political analysis or strategic uh, um, hindsight. Had you been a cameraman before, a cinematographer? Uh, no, I hadn't. Uh, um, uh, but I should say, shooting combat isn't that hard, um, and you know, there's a there's a lot of tolerance for error in the on the part of the viewer when you're shooting in circumstances like that. Tim and I made this film. We each had a video camera. We alternated trips. We each did five one month trips. 
uh, to so come. So you weren't there together. You were always and on separate uh, deployments. A couple of there, a couple of times we were there together. Uh, more often we were there apart, just to cover more territory. Um, I had shot some video starting in 2003 in, in Liberia. And, you know, what I realized was that, you know, I'd write an article for Vanity Fair. Sometimes I'd be asked to be on a TV network to talk about whatever the story was. And I realized if I had a little bit of B-roll to give them to show what I'd seen, you know, so much the better. And that's how I started shooting. But I was certainly not a, you know, cameraman per se. What strikes me the most about the work that you've done in this realm is that to the viewer, you are not there. We are there. There is no insinuation of uh, Sebastian Younger into the work that you have done. Uh, it is just first person. As you said, it's very much like this 90-minute deployment when we look at Restrepo uh, in the comfort of our own homes or uh, even on the big screen. The question that I've been wondering, uh, Sebastian, is how do you how do you reconcile where we are today in Afghanistan? What, what you focused on is something that was a huge turning point. Uh, in the Korongo Valley, but the the politics and the news around this war and the policy uh, are morphing daily. Do you have insights into where we are today and what's really going on now over there with those folks? Uh, Yes, I do, but let me just sort of address the first point um, initially. Uh, I feel that there's a very unfortunate trend in broadcast journalism um, of sort of turning the correspondent into the hero and in some ways into the subject of the report. And so, I mean, I understand giving a stand-up, you know, on camera and on the battlefield where you're explaining things. But, you know, sometimes you literally see, you know, the the correspondent crouched behind sandbags while people are getting shot at, and it's as if he or she is the sort of the point of all this. And, and uh, to me, as a journalist, I feel that that's the wrong direction to go in. Uh, Tim and I, our idea was to have nothing in the film, no one in the film who wasn't fighting in the Korangal Valley, which meant we couldn't even interview a general because there weren't generals over there. Um, we really restricted ourselves to these soldiers' reality, and we didn't want to become part of that reality in that sense. We weren't fighting. We were there to document, and we stayed out of the way of the cameras. Uh, I mean, to your other question about what's going on in Afghanistan, I mean, how many hours do you got? I mean, it's a complicated, it's a long, complicated issue. Uh, I mean, to simplify it a little bit, I think we've basically figured out the tactical battlefield problems. Like, we basically win every fight we have over there. And the problems have shifted to a more political and social domain. There's a lot of assassinations, uh, bombings, and a whole sort of political manipulation by the Taliban where they coerce villagers into cooperating with them, even if the villagers don't like them. It's a very, very hard war to fight. And, you know, and ultimately, I mean, I was going to Afghanistan starting in the mid-90s. The Afghans, for the most part, really do not like the Taliban. The Taliban, they were an awful regime. They, they were, the Afghans were very glad to be rid of them in 2001. And this would be an easy fight, except the government that we gave the Afghans to replace the Taliban is a completely corrupt c- criminal cartel that's basically serving itself. And until we... Um, I, I think we have a lot of leverage to pressure Karzai into acting better. And until we do that, no sane Afghan is going to stand up and risk his life defending a, a regime like that. It's just ridiculous. And, um, you know, until the Afghans are willing to stand up and do that, we're going to have to do it for them. And so it all comes back to a political problem. Sebastian, let's hear a little sound from uh, Restrepo and pick it up from there and talk about the process of how... Uh, videography feeds writing and how writing feeds videography. First friend I lost was Restrepo. Where Restrepo died, we shot off flares. 
In the middle of the night, we put up a firebase. They realized once they could not knock off OP Restrepo, we had the upper hand. Hey, man, I miss you. It takes a little bit out of you every time you see one of your boys get hurt. It's really like a big family. Now, you did five one-month stints uh, in the course of Second Company's uh, 15-month deployment. And obviously, you'd have, you'd have the material that you brought back that Tim had shot. And take us through the process of either being in New York or wherever you were composing, on the one hand, War, and on the other hand, in the studio, editing Restrepo. And tell us how the process was a different writing process than maybe The Perfect Storm or Death in Belmont. Um, well, it was a very interesting interaction. Uh, Tim started shooting video about five months into the deployment. Um, w- my first trip there, I, I didn't even know Tim yet. I was sort of on my own. And what I realized, uh, at, you know, I shot a lot of video, a lot of video of combat. And what I realized was that combat is such an intense experience that a lot of stuff drops out. And, you know, if you're there with a notebook trying to take notes during a firefight, I mean, first of all, nobody does that. It, you, you look like an idiot, and you can't read your handwriting later. So it, <laughs> it, it just doesn't it just doesn't work on so many levels. But um, also, your mind just does very strange things when you're in that kind of situation, but the video camera doesn't. It just records exactly what happens. And so what I was able to do, I would come back with my footage, and then I also, of course, made use of the footage Tim shot, um, I would come back and I would compare my memory to what was on the camera. And as I was writing my book, um, I would go back to the videotape over and over again because there were conversations I wanted to know verbatim. There were things that were said, things that happened in firefights that I couldn't possibly retain in my mind if I was just a print journalist. And and the, the video camera became an amazing tool, uh, not just to make a documentary, but to enha- enhance the book that I was writing. Sebastian Younger joins us here on Polyoptics, uh, Series 6 M124. One of the things that uh, I found most fascinating, specifically in Restrepo, was the the point of view that you gave us uh, on our men in uniform when they interface with uh, the folks on the ground, uh, the tribal leaders and the people who are uh, living in the Korangal Valley. And I wonder... Uh, was it very difficult to to have a camera in those situations, or was was did you blend into the background even then? Well, the Afghans would come onto the base every Friday to have a, a sort of council um, with Captain Kearney and some of the other officers. You know, five, ten years from now, the Korngal Valley is going to have a road going through it that's paved, and we can make more money, make you guys richer, make you guys more powerful. What I need, though is I need you to join with the government, you know, provide us with that security or help us provide you guys with that security. And I'll flood this whole place with money and with projects and with health care and with everything. It happened every Friday. Sometimes the meetings were very jovial and lighthearted and frankly entertaining. Sometimes they were very angry and confrontational. I mean, it was it was everything. And. Um, you know, we were, as far as the Afghans were concerned, you know, we were just another couple of soldiers who weren't dressed in, you know, combat fatigues, and they didn't question it. They didn't particularly bother them. They just didn't pay us any mind at all. So it, it wasn't a problem at all. I, I should also add, just to clarify, that that bit of audio we heard before was from the trailer that was done for the movie. One, one of the crucial parts of the film that we did was that we we didn't want anyone in the film who wasn't fighting in the Korangal, but we, but we also didn't want any narration. Mm-hmm because there's no narrator in life. I mean, you don't want a voiceover of someone explaining what's happening because that's not real. Likewise, no musical score. Um, 
So what we did was we interviewed the soldiers in Italy, their base in Italy, three months after the deployment ended, and we used those interviews and that audio to explain the the, the verite footage that you're that you're watching, so that at least, even though those interviews were done later against a black uh, background, at least the voices and the people were consistent with the, um, the 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 material that you were seeing from the from the deployment itself. Um. The one character, or you know, uh, throughout uh, the book, there's focus on many characters of Second Company. But the one character who you sort of follow and wonder sort of what became of is uh, is Brendan O'Byrne, uh, Staff Sergeant, and uh, uh, it's been uh, made known that uh, subsequent to his uh, uh, leaving the army, uh, that he's gone into another profession that you've actually helped him in. Can you sort of? sketch the timeline of, of O'Byrne and how you became involved with him after the book and sort of g- give us a sense of where he is now? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, just minor thing, it's uh, Second Platoon Battle Company. And uh, I say that because if they hear this interview, they'll, be, they'll kill me. Then and I Adam, you it. and I are always in trouble in that, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, we uh, never quite get that right, Sebastian. Apologies. <laughs> no, no worries. Uh, Second Platoon Battle Company. Um, so Brendan was one of the guys I got closest to out there, and he was the only guy to get out of the Army after the deployment, and everyone else stayed in. Everyone else did another deployment. Uh, Pemble uh, is still out there right now. He's coming home in a couple of weeks, actually. Um, but um, So Brendan got out, and he, you know, he was literally in more danger to himself back home as a civilian uh, than his, his buddies were in the platoon, you know, doing another deployment. I mean, he really had a hard time. Um, but we stayed very close, and I, you know, I got my start. I mean, before I was uh, um, a successful author and journalist, I was a climber for tree companies, and this is sort of how I made my money while I was sort of getting my skills together. Um, and so I, I, you know, I worked 70, 80 feet in the air taking trees down with it on a rope, you know, with a chainsaw, and um, and it's tremendous work. It's very high adrenaline. It's very well paid. It's a lot of the things that young men get out of combat. Uh, I was getting out of tree work, and so when Brendan got out, I, I I still have all my old gear. I still do jobs for friends once in a while because it's very expensive to have it done, and I I miss it. You know, I enjoy it. So, I I loaned Brendan my gear. I trained him for a while. We did some jobs together, and uh, now he's actually working for my old boss from the early '90s, uh, Bobby Laurie in Boston, um, and they're working together every day. Brendan's turned into a far better climber than I ever was, I'm sure, and uh, it really is sort of a dr- you know, I think it's ultimately a temporary job for him in his life. He's moving on to other things eventually, but I think it was sort of ideal for him. Yeah, no, I, I was just sitting here thinking about that and wanting to ask you a question, Josh, about sure. uh, the politics of war. Um, so often, especially here in Washington, D.C., we seem so incredibly far removed, and we are so far removed, and we hear the topic of policy, whether it's a drawdown or a strategy in, in Afghanistan of, of, of leaving the Afghan army uh, with the equipment that they need uh, to fight this war or to carry on, and then you hear back-channel uh, discussions going on with the Taliban, and I, and I wonder uh, what this does to the morale uh, of folks who are fighting over there. How do they process the politics? Uh, and are they even aware of it beyond the mission that's staring them in the face? I mean, it, it's a. It, I was thinking as you were talking, Adam, how um, you know in, in your discussion last week uh, with Anita McBride, uh, and in so many of our previous polyoptics discussions, we've thought of the work that we do as sort of uh, 
uh, consequential, exciting uh, on the road, around the world, at the White House. And uh, but it, it is, as I think Sebastian lays out so beautifully in in War. Uh, it is to this 150 men of Second uh, Platoon Battle Company to uh, prosecute, I guess, 20% of the actual combat in Afghanistan during their deployment, where there were 70,000 NATO troops de- deployed. So, I mean, I've, and I've heard Sebastian say this in in other interviews, but that uh, it was almost you, you almost shield out the rest of the world and focus only on the work at hand, right? Yeah, those guys had their hands full. I mean, yeah, 150 men, a battle company uh, in the Korangal, uh, and a fifth of all the combat in, in Afghanistan was happening in that little valley. Um, and so, uh, you know, they're 19, 20 years old. Just for starters, they're not particularly political creatures. I mean, I wasn't either at 19, you know, and, uh, and, and neither are they. They're all there not because their president made a decision to go to Afghanistan. They're there because they chose to join the military and they once in the military they had to work very very hard to try to get into a combat unit i mean it's actually you don't get you don't wind up in the 173rd airborne uh by accident you have to you're really making the first string of the football team and so all of those guys um although they suffered out there none of them sort of whined about it because they were there of their own volition and um and so that's a very crucial distinction. So they don't debate the politics of the war because that's not what put them in Afghanistan. They did. And also, you know, I should say that the the war could be going terribly, say, down in Kandahar. But if things are pretty good in the Korangal, then they're, then they're all right. You know, and they're very much like the police. Like, if, you know, police work in their precincts. And if a precinct is going crazy on the other side of town, they might kind of know about it, think about it. But it doesn't affect them directly. And the soldiers are really not any more political about war than the police are about, I don't know, whatever the uh, social, you know, the policies are that affect crime or, you know, whatnot in, in, in the city. That's a great point. I'd love to sort of pursue further because uh, as you and I were emailing yesterday, I, I confessed to you that I was a big fan, that I'd read just about everything that you've published between two hardcovers and a lot of things that you've put in Vanity Fair and other places. And certainly uh, after reading The Perfect Storm, went right out to the theater to see uh, George Clooney as Billy Tyne in Perfect Storm, Captain of the Andrea Gale. And here he is in one early speech talking to Linda Greenlaw about why he goes out to sea. You can't be good unless you love it. Fog's just lifting. Throw off your bow line, throw off your stern. You head out the South Channel, past Rocky Neck, Ten Pound Island, past Niles Pond, where I skated as a kid. You blow your air horn and you throw a wave to the lighthouse keeper's kid on Thatcher Island. And the birds show up. Black backs and herring gulls, big dump ducks. The sun hits you, head north, open up to 12. Steaming now. The guys are busy, you're in charge. You know what? You're a goddamn swordboat captain. Is there anything better in the world? No matter what you're doing, whether you're sword fishing or, or in the Korangal Valley, it's if you, if to the final bit, final sort of, uh, third part of war, if you love what you're doing, that's what you do. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there are certain kinds of young men who don't do very well indoors, don't do very well in offices, and have, a, in some ways, a kind of need to prove themselves um, and to operate outside of society in some way. And, I mean, you go back in American history, the fur trappers that went off into Montana and, and Wyoming and Colorado, I mean, you know, th that's those guys. You know, they obviously couldn't, couldn't deal with society very well, and off they went. And there have always been people like that, mostly men, I think. Um, the fishermen in Gloucester, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know the wives, you know, some of the wives in Gloucester would, you know, they'd say, uh, you know, b having him gone for a month at a time actually isn't that hard. In fact, that's why the marriage is still going. It's because he's not around all the time. He needs to get out of here and once in a while. And soldiers as well, you know, it, it, they they deserve our, 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 our sympathy for what they do. It's a hard job. Um, but a lot of those guys... Um, chose that chose that profession uh, because they wanted to experience it and, and it, you sh that's why they're so proud of it and so so we don't you don't want to replace pride with sympathy entirely because they're extremely proud of it and they sort of hope that we will be proud of them as well loving what you do and making the sacrifices necessary to follow through on the promise uh, is something that, that your career is all about. I mean, we've been talking about Restrepo. That was a self-financed film. But so much of the work that you have done uh, has been on spec. I mean, you've gone out there to tell a story, to live uh, side by side and, and understand what's going on, whether it's uh, the perfect storm or you know, fire. Uh, give us a sense of, of how much of yourself and how big an issue to, to fund and, and, and realize some sort of uh, economic uh, sustenance from your work has been. You've obviously achieved great success, but that wasn't always the case, especially at the beginning. Yeah, my, I mean, my first war was Bosnia, and I was a you know very much a struggling freelancer in, in Boston. I was working as a climber for tree companies. It was not coming together. <laughs> I'd hit my leg with a chainsaw and you know tore it open and. And, you know, I went, I, I went to Bosnia without an assignment. I just loaded up a backpack with a sleeping bag and some notebooks and pens, and I had a few thousand dollars, and I just off I went. And I figured out how to be a foreign reporter. Part of my motivation was that, you know, it was a terrible story that, that should be told. And uh, part of my motivation was sort of thinking, well, this could work. I mean, this could work for me, and it will turn me into a journalist. So there is always an element of, of self-interest in all of the journalism that happens, but that's fine. That doesn't negate the, the real, real social good that comes from good journalism. They go together very, very well. Um, and and you've, you've remarked, I mean, as we began this conversation talking about Tim Hetherington and the other uh, correspondents with the lens and with the pencil who've lost their lives uh, in just 46 in 2011, and I think you've said in some recent interviews, Sebastian, that uh, you're going to put your pen down in war, in war correspondent work for a while. Is that how are you thinking about it today? After Tim died, I, I suddenly got it. I understood that the thing you're gambling with when you cover wars um, isn't, in some ways, your own life. I mean, you are, of course, but the repercussions don't play out in your own life because you're dead. The screen goes blank. That's the end of that. The repercussions of decisions made in war zones play out in other people's lives and in the, in the real sorrow and grief and pain that everyone who loves you is going to have to bear for many years. And I had to bear it with Tim, and it was shocking how painful it was. And I'd only known him for four years. I mean, they were very intense four years, but still, it was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't my, you know, brother from childhood or anything. And I just, you know, I'm 50, and, you know, there comes an age where it's, 
you know, you're too, you're too old to be hurting people. And, um, I, I just decided I don't want to run the risk of ever doing that to the people I'm really close to. So I'm going to keep reporting. I'll be keep going overseas and all that stuff. But, you know, pickup trucks filled with rebels, uh, that's in my past. That's right. I mean, you you wrote, uh, I don't know if you call it a eulogy for Tim or remembrance uh, in the front page of Vanity Fair after he died. And uh, it goes so much, Adam, to the notion of polyoptics. I'll just read a couple of lines of what Sebastian wrote. You had this idea that young men in combat act in ways that emulate images they've seen, movies, photographs of other men in other wars, other battles. You had this idea of a feedback loop between the world of images and the world of men that continually reinforced and altered itself as one war inevitably replaced another in the long, tragic grind of human affairs. And even given what you said, uh, those that are still with pen or lens uh, out on the front lines embedded with the troops feel a need to bring those messages home and those images home so that uh, people like Adam and myself can potentially, hopefully, be educated. That's right. I, I mean, all democracies rest in part on a, a free and functioning press, and God forbid we wage war uh, without the scrutiny of the press uh, to keep people acting well or as well as possible. Um, and in some of the conflicts in, in, the, in the developing world, like Liberia, Sierra Leone, Kosovo, Libya, most recently in Libya, Syria, the world really couldn't make it a responsible decision about whether to intervene, when to intervene, when it's necessary to intervene to try to preserve human life. Seven, some seven or 8,000 civilians have died in Syria right now, and the world is really, I think the Western world is really struggling with the question of, you know, at what point is this just morally unacceptable and we have to, we have to get it to stop no matter what. Um, we obviously did that in World War II with Germany, but on a smaller scale, that kind of uh, monstrosity happens over and over again. It happened in Bosnia in 93, 94, 100,000 civilians died. It's a huge question for the, for the West, for the world community. When do we intervene? Sebastian Younger uh, with us here on Polyoptics on POTUS, Series XM 124. So what is next then as you, as you look out on the territory yet to conquer in your career? Uh, you've, you've got a family. You're living in New York City. You own an interest in a bar. Uh, what, 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 uh, what is next on your hit parade? Oh God! I'm, you know, I'm uh, frankly, I'm not exactly sure. This was such a huge project. Can we get you on the campaign trail? <laughs> I don't know. That sounds that sounds more dangerous. Too than much call. <laughs> yeah, um, but that's a great question that Josh asked because when you talk about the the verite element, there's there's a lot that uh, people do to strive to bring that out of the campaign trail, and yet a lot of it ultimately falls short because. It's all shot with a point of view and an advocacy element in mind. Um, is is there a need for someone like you out yeah. there? I mean, your very study of anthropology and the way that you approached Perfect Storm and the way you approached Death in Belmont and the way you approached war is not just to focus on the immediate action on hand, but what are the psychological uh, uh, pressures and motivations and uh, external scientific aspects that drive people to do what they do? Well, it's a very interesting thing that's happening right now. I feel that um, journalism and advocacy are blurring, and I think that's very, very dangerous. And there are networks, uh, there are newspapers who very clearly are trying, actively trying to lead their 
readers, their viewers, towards a, a conclusion uh, or towards, you know, voting in a certain way. The left does it, the right does it, um, and that's not journalism. I mean, it's something else, and it's perfectly valid, but it, God forbid we call it journalism. And I, and, and I think um, I think the future of this country politically ultimately is going to depend on, on, on the public and the media becoming clear on that distinction because it's very blurred right now. And, and um, uh, you know, frankly, a lot of people don't entirely trust what they read or see because they know it's coming out of a particular agenda that's held by the, by the journalist. When you think about uh, transparency, which is a word that you hear a lot, especially in politics these days, Sebastian, and then you, th- you think about another word, disclosure. Um, you talked to us a little bit earlier about uh, not wanting to have anyone in Restrepo who wasn't really fighting that war, and yet in, in, in political battle, and I don't mean to over-dramatize uh, the theatrics behind uh, the campaign that we're living through right now in 2012 or, or how heated politics can be, it's precisely that, that style of transparency or the ability to disclose what interests one has that uh, is compromising journalists. Is that what I'm hearing you say? You know, you've worked with ABC News in the past. You, you, you're no stranger to network news correspondence and, and uh, people within this realm. How much of the onus is on, is on the, the producers of media, and how much is an awareness that's just lacking in the, in the public in general about who they choose to listen to and how much they need to do their homework on, on the point of view that they're getting? Well, I think it's all a matter of labeling. And, you know, if, if, uh, if Bill O'Reilly, who has a certain political position, and I respect it, and it's his right to have that, if Bill O'Reilly said... This I, I I openly advocate for a Republican uh, administration. That's how I feel. And if you stay with me for the next half hour, you're going to hear me try to convince you to think like I do. If he did that, I think it would just be wonderful in journalism because it, he would be making clear, look, I'm not an impartial observer. I want you to think like I do. That's great. That's fantastic. But then there should be other people who who fight their inclinations and their personal convictions as hard as possible so that they give a neutral point of view. And when I, you know, I've been asked a lot about objectivity because I was embedded with, you know, you know, 35 men, a platoon for off and on for a year. Obviously, I wasn't objective. I liked those guys. I didn't like the Taliban. They were trying to kill me. You know, like, I mean, clearly I wasn't objective. So I have this section in my book, you know, a couple of paragraphs where, where I say to the reader, I literally say, uh, don't read this book looking for objectivity. It's impossible in this situation. I really like these guys, and I'm going to try to get. I'm going to try to give you a glimpse into their world and why they feel the way they do. It's completely subjective. I am totally subjective here, and that's fine as long as you're honest about your subjectivity. And what I wish people in the press would do is be honest about their subjectivity, and then they're good to go. Then they can say whatever they want. Um, but that's not happening, and I think it's really unfortunate. It makes a big difference to hear you say that, and I think that it makes a lot of sense to me that for, for journalism uh, to be more upfront about the people that they have uh, hosting shows or point of views or what advocacy uh, looks like when, when you actually hear it and not try and cover it up. One of the big things that, that I think about a lot, Sebastian, is following the money. Um, we see today Sheldon Adelston uh, giving you know millions more to Newt Gingrich, and I think about 
how much money it takes to play in a space like this, a uh, presidential campaign. But if you don't have enough actors on the stage or you don't have uh, enough uh, contention to keep people's uh, minds focused on the issue, you end up with a political race that's that's just very quiet. And, and are you following uh, the, the Republican primaries? Do you have an eye on the news and the narrative, even as it affects the issues that you care most about and, and the, the experience that you have abroad and with our foreign wars? Uh, what, what is your take on the, the back and forth that goes on right now in the formative stages of this political year that we have in the presidency? Well, you know, in, in terms of uh, national politics, I'm just a news consumer like anyone else. I have zero expertise. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm I'm following the Republican primary. I mean, I, I, you know, just at least for its sheer entertainment value. I mean, like, finally they've created a show that's more entertaining than Jon Stewart. I can't believe it. They somehow did it. It's just incredible You to can't watch. make this up. <laughs> you can't make it up. No, it's amazing. Um, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm, one of the things that troubled me in, in 08 was that, you know, some of the attacks that were going on were so vicious. Um, and and now it's really interesting that that viciousness is, you know, it's sort of, it feels like, okay, I'm a Democrat, I admit it, I'm a liberal, I keep, I keep that out of my writing, but just as a person, as a citizen, I'm a Democrat, okay? So I'm watching the Republicans do this, and it feels like the scorpion has sort of stung itself. You know, that's incredibly distorting... Um, combative, uh, skeptical viewpoint that that I think has poisoned politics in the last decade is now playing out completely within the Republican Party. This is exactly it, what I wanted to get you to, to weigh in on, because yeah. it, it seems like th this is really where we are. It, you know, it breaks my heart for the Republicans and for this party. I mean, I have good friends who are Republicans, like decent, long-standing Republicans who have a real, really thought-out worldview. And you know, the, the, I mean, the left can drift, just drift off into la-la land if there isn't a good Republican Party to keep it honest. And my fear isn't that the Republicans are going to lose in November. I think they probably are. My fear is that the Democrats, the liberals, my, you know, my tribe is just going to drift off into irrelevance because they have they don't have a sort of viable adversary, a viable but honest and, and respectful adversary. Yeah, I, as the other Democrat on the line, uh, I don't feel that bad for them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, because I see a pattern repeating itself. Um, I see that, and it, and it happens uh, both uh, in 1984, uh, 2004, on the Republican side, you've got an incumbent president, whether it's Ronald Reagan or George W. Bush. It is damned hard to beat an incumbent. Uh, of course, Bill Clinton did it to George H.W. Uh, Bush in 92, and Reagan did it to Carter in, in 80. But, uh, you know, the talent rises when the opportunity is there. Uh, and you're seeing the best talent that the Republican Party has to, to put forward right now in Mitt Romney, Rick Santorum, Ron Paul, and Newt Gingrich. And, you know, it's it's wanting. It's wanting for a Jeb Bush. It's wanting for uh, a Mitch Daniels, people who are who, who have a, a, a admirable Republican thesis. But, you know, Sheldon Adelson's money aside, uh, they're sitting on the sidelines for, for cleaner pastures in 2016 when they don't have an Air Force One to campaign against. Yeah, I know. I think that's probably right. And I'm way out of, out of my depth there talking about politics. But I should, again, just as a sort of consumer of the news every night, I, I, the feeling I'm starting to get is that there's a, that actually that the two parties in this country aren't the Republicans and the Demo Democrats. 
the two parties that really exist in this country are, you know, essentially reasonable people <laughs> and, and, and the, the crazies. <laughs> and I think the crazies on the left and the crazies on the right are far sim more similar than they are to the reasonable positions within their own parties. And maybe somehow the sort of magnetic polarity, political polarity will shift. And suddenly what you'll get is a coalition of reasonable people uh, on either side of the aisle, Republican and Democrat, but who are basically interested in a, in a dignified, reasonable debate, and that they will defeat the crazies who seem to be running things at the moment. Sebastian Younger joining us uh, on Polyoptics here on POTUS. Uh, really blessed to have the opportunity to take a look not only at the political world through your lens, uh, but also uh, speak a little bit about the people who have lost their life uh, chasing uh, objectivity where it can be found and bringing us all a little bit closer to what's really going on uh, on the front lines around the world. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I think it was uh, this week morning, Joe, uh, Joe Scarborough, he said, look, I'm going to people off by saying this, but it's over. Uh, and th that Santorum had his last chance in Michigan uh, to try and d disrupt the narrative. Then Steve Ratner weighs in and says, yes, but there's this one asterisk, which is Ohio. Uh, and uh, and it's really going to play out, play itself out in the next six days, Adam, about whether uh, Santorum can upend Romney in Ohio. But I do think that, uh, as we've said through our previous 46 episodes uh, that eventually I think we'll have a uh, Obama and Romney face off in the general election it will be a bruised Romney but uh, then again there was a bruised Obama coming out of his primary fight with Hillary Clinton I see the ability to reset as a candidate I see the ability to have you know two months off on the uh, basically on the campaign trail before your convention to to get your general election message in order I know there's a ton of video and they're all the the gaffes that verbal gaffes that he's made but as people have written he can turn those into strengths by addressing them and I I, I have uh, enduring faith in the ability of campaigns both Democratic and Republican, to take stock of their strengths and their weaknesses and make sort of halftime corrections when you get to the general election. I agree with you completely, and that's one of the great things that comes from being able to do a show like Polyoptics, where we can hear from frontline reporters like Ashley Parker, but then also take a step back and see the, the sort of 30,000-foot narrative, especially with regard to what's going on in the Middle East, the potential for conflict in Iran, and the idea that even as the Republican primary continues to, to move around the country, there will be a break, there will be a nominee, and we will have a hard reset, as, as you, Josh King, have just described. Uh, and, and I couldn't agree with you more that when, when people shake off the early season politics, uh, the, the issues that really will carry the day are the ones that we'll be talking about in the fall. It was a great episode of, of Polyoptics, Josh, and uh, we'll be back to do another one next week. Absolutely. See you then, Adam. Now hosting the Press Pool on POTUS, Julie Mason. Joining me now, Sam Donaldson, the veteran White House correspondent. I don't think Ronald Reagan could be nominated by the Republican Party today. Well, yes, sure, certainly, if he were 
you know, back with us, being Ronald Reagan, I think he would be. But being someone with his positions, he raised taxes 16 times as president. He withdrew Marines when they were blown up in Lebanon rather than send in the steel and show those people what we're made of. The Press Pool with Julie Mason. David Hawkins, he's editor of CQ Roll Call Daily Briefing. Conservative Republicans came in with this, really with a head of steam about cutting spending. But when it comes to certain things, the infrastructure is in terrible shape. The country's falling apart in that in that quite literal sense. Roads and bridges are the place to look whenever you want to think about the old aphorism that one person's pork barrel project is another person's vitally important safety enhancements. Weekday starting at noon east, 9 a.m. west on POTUS, Sirius XM 124. Car Talk on Sirius XM's NPR Now is where you can learn to listen to your car. It's more of like a gong, 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 gong kind of sound. This noise that kind of goes, mm-hmm. so it goes, rear, rear. Like a loud, Sounds like it's making this steel noise like exactly. What's your car trying to tell you? Car Talk with Click and Clack the Tappet Brothers on NPR Now, Sirius XM, Channel 122. Politics of the United States for the people of the United States. This is POTUS, Sirius XM 124.